Welcome back to the podcast with another English episode for you and a very interesting one, if I may add, about philosophy of science and especially about the replication crisis. We'll get into what that means soon and about whether you can trust science and what a scientific finding tells you and means and to what extent it should inform you about your beliefs. So let me just introduce this issue, right? So I grew up in the era when you were supposed to eat 11 servings of grain a day and avoid fat at all costs. Those were the health recommendations from the FDA based on science. And it's not my fault or my parents' fault that we followed them. There wasn't much way to know better. We didn't have access to the information we'd need to question them. We just had to trust the science that was being used and also trust that it was being used with the utmost diligence and that the authorities disseminating scientific knowledge to us were being honest and accurate. Then the internet happened. Suddenly we could investigate the process, the data and so on. And some stuff just wasn't adding up. Science, it turned out, wasn't this idyllic magical truth machine being used by judicious, benevolent Prometheans attempting to bring fire to the people. It was a tool like any tool. Some people were using the tool for corrupt ends. And many of the people we were trusting to interpret the science for us had no idea, turned out, what they were talking about. So we'd hear, drinking red wine may increase your lifespan. And then we would check the reporter's research. And it turned out their science was one study of giving impossibly high doses of reservatol, the ingredient that's supposed to extend your lifespan in, in wine to mice. We'd heard about the dangers of fat and it turned out that research was paid for by the sugar industry and so on. So in more serious fields, you could say. So on average, four or five studies on cancer markers are published daily. Almost all of them reporting at least one statistically significant, we'll get into what that means as well, prognostic marker. Statistically significant just basically means that it's you're allowed to say that it's probably true. Nonetheless, few of these results have been replicated. And that means, we're also going to get into that. That means that if other researchers try the same thing again, they don't find the result that you find. So probably the result isn't there and it's not true and something else was going on. For example, when a team of 100 scientists tried to replicate the finding of 63 landmark articles, they succeeded for only six. The others... The result just didn't appear this time. So there was something else going on. Similarly, when the pharmaceutical company Bayer examined 67 projects on oncology, women's health, and cardiovascular medicine, they were able to replicate the results in only 14 cases. The other results, who knows how they've appeared, but not necessarily because they were true. In the United States alone, irreproducible preclinical research slowing down the discovery of life-saving therapies and cures has been estimated as costing 28 billion annually. And also in the social sciences, such as psychology, many classical findings that I grew up with as an undergraduate, I took tests on, had lectures on and so on, such as ego depletion and priming, turn out to probably not exist as well. Now, the recently discovered fact that so many published results are apparently false alarms has in science itself been baptized as the replication crisis. And today I talk about the replication crisis and about the weight of scientific findings with philosopher of science, Remco Heysen. He works at the University of Western Australia and the University of Groningen. And some of you might recall that he's been on this podcast before. 
Some of you might also recall that two weeks ago, I mentioned that I'm going to work with recurring guests more because then we can have multiple conversations and we can build something and it's nice and it's fun. And Remco is also one of the recurring guests. So in two months time, more or less, you'll have another opportunity to listen to him. But for now, please enjoy our conversation about the replication crisis. I'm reading the newspaper and there's an article claiming that some kind of, there is like a scientific publication that says this or that is true, or we have found this or that effect. Does that mean that I can now conclude that this is in fact true? Yeah. So we found that peanut butter causes cancer, so we should all stop eating peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously not, I guess I would say. <laughs> um, it's actually, I would say it's... Uh, one of the most sort of classic findings, I think, things that philosophers of science have been discussing for at least 100 years, that a single scientific study can always be wrong, can always be overturned, isn't a definitive proof of everything, of anything. Yeah, I mean, this goes all the way back to the problem of induction, even, I would say. You just can't know for sure that a single study is true or it gives you the right sort of results. And also, perhaps more or less theoretically, maybe we should say that, like, it's also just true in from experience that specific scientific studies get overturned quite frequently. Um, right. It's not just a theoretical worry. It's something that actually happens. Right. But in a more innocent sense, you could also say that if a scientific study gets overturned by a newer study, that's just a normal scientific progress. Yeah. And to a large extent, it is, I would say. And that's, that sounds good to me. I you know, the... The way we make scientific progress is by learning new things, including sometimes changing things we thought we knew. But of course, the sort of the less optimistic form of this story is that this seems to have happened a little bit more recently. And mm -hmm. people are worried that maybe this is the result of bad practices, bad scientific practices or methodologies that have um, gained prominence in the last half a century or so. Right. So what we're seeing is that, um, you know, scientific results that got overturned or, you know, turn out not to be true. This happens to such an extent that more is going on than just ordinary scientific progress. Yeah, that's the worry at least. So people have called this the, uh, the replication crisis or the reproducibility crisis. Um, and there's this sense that's developed over the last 10, 15 years. That there is uh, that there is more going on there. That there may be systematic problems that make it so that we can't trust large large sections of scientific results. Could you give some examples of uh, what causes this large batch of untrustworthy scientific results? And you know, and, and what is what does the term replication or reproducibility crisis mean? Yeah, so this is, I mean, all of this is very much up for debate and there's ongoing discussion on what all these things means. Um, yeah, but so um, I guess replication just refers to trying to do a study again as close as possible to, to the study as it was, around, was done originally and seeing if you get similar results. So people think there's a crisis when that's um, happening at lower rates than they think it should, right? So you get more often 
dissimilar results or less often similar results than you were hoping for at least. Right. Uh, people are pointing at, at methodological and especially statistical practices, I think, as a particular cause of, of these sorts of issues. So there's a worry that the way that, um, especially in the biological and social sciences, that students have been trained to use statistical methods, that that might be um, a big part of what's, what's causing these issues. Right. So what you're saying is that we'd expect that when we try a certain study again, there would be, you know, in a large percentage of cases, we would have the same results, um, you know, whatever this percentage might be, but pretty high. And then it turns out that actually uh, oftentimes this happens that we try the same study again to, to, to try to confirm the result, see if it wasn't some kind of fluke or, you know, whatever. And then it turns out that actually rather often turns out that we do not find this result again. So that means that in a lot of times there is the first guess, at least my first guess would be that if this happens a lot of times, it means there's something fishy is going on with all these studies. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's, yeah, as I said, there's a lot of complications, a lot of debate around this. In particular, one of the tricky aspects in what you said there is to establish what you should expect in the first place mm -hmm. from these uh, replication rates from this percentage of success. Maybe that's something we can come back to trying to zone in on these statistical practices that people are talking about. Mm -hmm. So the way that a lot of studies in the social sciences, especially are set up, is that you're, you're working in a statistical paradigm called frequentism or classical statistics, which means that you have a null hypothesis that there is, um, no effect or no, no interesting phenomena at play in the thing you're studying. And you're trying to disprove that null hypothesis. So you're your evidence, it shows that there's a real effect here, um, by this process of statistical test is supposed to reveal that the null hypothesis is false. And so there is in fact, an interesting effect going on here. Right. So maybe can we get relate that back to the example of peanut butter causing cancer? So your null yeah. hypothesis would be that there's no connection relationship between consumption of peanut butter and and odds of, I guess, of getting cancer. And then you're going to try to disprove that null hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. So you might imagine that you, you have two populations, one eating peanut butter and one not eating peanut butter. And yeah. your null hypothesis is that the percentage of people who gets cancer in both groups is going to be the same. And your alternative right. hypothesis is that the group of people that are eating peanut butter have a higher chance of getting cancer. And so you're no, you use your null hypothesis, the way that this actually gets done is you use your null hypothesis effectively to form a prediction, right? So in the same percentage of cases of cancer, and then you count, right. and then you look at your evidence and you calculate, um, how likely it would be to see the evidence that you actually got or evidence more extreme than that, given that the null hypothesis is true. Right. So if we assume that in right. fact, you get the same chance of getting cancer, regardless of whether you ate peanut butter, but in our data set, more people who ate peanut butter got cancer. And we look at how unlikely, how surprising that would be, given that we've assumed that the null hypothesis is true. And this is right. what we call, this is what we call the P value, right? So the standard right. P value comparison is that we, we look for P values that are smaller than 5%. And so this would say. Right. That if the null hypothesis were true, there would be a probability of at most 5% that you would see data this extreme as what you've actually observed. 
And so if this right. P value is small, below 5%, then your data is really surprising given the null hypothesis, but that gives you some indication that the null hypothesis may need to be rejected. So let's say I observed that, you know, people who eat peanut butter, they get like 80% of that population, uh, like these folks, they get cancer and only 20% of the people who don't eat peanut butter get cancer. And then if in fact, there is no difference in chance of getting cancer, if you eat peanut butter or not, if that's the case, and then the chance would be less than 5% that I observed this difference of 80, 20, then I, and then I'm allowed to conclude that, you know, probably, or no, I'm allowed to conclude that there is an effect of, um, or at least there's a difference like a true difference between people who in, in terms of chance of getting cancer between people who eat peanut butter and people who do not eat peanut butter. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the idea behind this sort of statistical paradigm. And if right. it was in fact as radical a difference as 80% and 20%, then unless you had a really small sample size, you would probably have a significant results. Yeah. So statistical significance yeah. is when you're p-value is below your threshold, so typically 5%. So then you say, not just we've found that um, peanut butter increases your chance of cancer, but the result was significant, meaning that it's probability that we would have found this result if the null hypothesis were actually true, would have been less than 5%. Sounds kind of, um, sounds like it makes sense. Right. Now, yeah, the tricky thing here is that um, because this is, this way of thinking about uh, evidence and what you can conclude from it is so ingrained in scientific communities that basically you have to have a statistically significant results to publish a paper in a journal. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problems start coming in because people want to publish papers. And so they publish things that are statistically significant and they don't publish things that are not statistically significant. Right. And so they have an interest if they want to publish their papers in finding statistically significant results. And so they're going to try to see what they can do to make sure that their results are statistically significant. So this is the, this is the practice that's called P hacking, which is where you try to, so the, the P and P hacking refers to the P value, right? So you, what you're trying to do when you're P hacking is you try slightly different statistical models slightly different ways of analyzing your data to see if you can find, um, if maybe, you know, your initial analysis doesn't use a statistically significant results. Maybe a slight change your analysis just gets you over the threshold so that your p-value is below 5%. And then you can report right. a statistically significant result. Right. So it's not always that, that your data set is that straightforward as, you know, you only ask people about whether they eat peanut butter or not or maybe how often they eat peanut butter, you know, or, um, and whether they get cancer or not, but maybe you ask, you have 20, like, like a lot of times other diseases you can get or not, or maybe types of peanut butter. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is the classic example is where you subdivide your data, right? So, okay. Right. So if we just take peanut butter and chance cancer as our variables, we don't find a statistically significant correlation. But if we split our data set into men and women, maybe it turns out that for the men, it's statistically significant and for the women, it's not, or the other way around. Or maybe it turns out right. that if you have um, peanut butter with a green lid, then it is statistically significant, but with a yellow lid, it's not. 
you know, that sorts of thing. You could, right. you could come up with endless varieties, especially if you've measured a large number of variables in your study and come up with all these variations to try to see if you can find something that's significant. And, um, I guess intuitively, if as a researcher, you were to, you know, try to explore in your data set, whether there is a chance, uh, like, uh, a difference between men and women and peanut butter and cancer, that does not seem like, um, like a bad thing to try to find out. Cause it still seems like a meaningful result that, you know, we'd like to know about if we would, if that were to be the case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so it's tricky to pinpoint exactly what the problem is here. If you're just looking at individual results, but I think the problem, the underlying problem is that once you start doing this. You've deviated from the methodology that you claim to be following when you are using this statistical paradigm, right? The analysis, the conclusion that your data is surprising in the sense of statistical significance, um, relies on the idea that you're just doing the one study at a time, right? If you are mm. trying out all these different things, because remember, right, the null hypothesis can still be true, but just, um, it's, it still has a positive probability of producing the data that you saw, you're just claiming that it's less than 5%. So that means mm. that if you had a result that had a p-value of 0.05, if you tried 20 different analyses and all the null hypotheses were true, there's a pretty good chance that you would find a statistically significant results. So if you're claiming to have done one analysis, but you've actually done 20, that's where the problems start coming. So that right. your p-value is no longer an honest representation of the statistical meaningfulness of your findings. Right. Yeah. I think this is something that you see a lot of times in these kind of nutritional studies where they have, uh, they try to test some kind of, uh, whatever, nutritional supplement or whatever, and then they just have 20 dependent variables like, um, blood pressure, sleep quality, and 20 more or so on. And they always find that one of the things turns out to be significant. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you can, you can play on both sides, right? You can change which brand of peanut butter you're using or whether you're dividing between men and women or in the lids of the peanut butter cups, mm -hmm. but you can also change your outcome variable, right? Do you look at chance of cancer or do you look at, um, survival rates after a certain period of time, or do you look at different kinds of diseases? Um, right. Or and some that, quality of life rating or whatever. Right. And so if you right. find a relation with any of these and you claim to have found health outcome for that particular product or whatever it is you're studying. Right. And then I guess the, the problem comes is that they don't report that they have actually tested 20 or, you know, whatever large amount of variables so that it, and then it seems that they found it's really surprising uh, one-on-one -on -one connection, but in fact, it's not surprising because you had 20, you tested yeah. for 20 and you only got one positive. So if you're using this, this statistical approach properly, then you have to correct for what they call multiple testing. So doing many, many different tests. If you do 20 tests and you find one statistically significant result, you have to lower your threshold for statistical significance to account for the facts that you're more likely to find coincidental results if you're doing more tests. And there is a way of doing that, but it's not always used or it's not always used honestly, right? If you hide some of the tests that you, that you also ran, 
then you are no longer reporting in a sense, if you buy into this whole methodology, you're no longer honestly reporting the sort of statistical meaningfulness of what you've been doing. Exactly. So it would seem that it, if you just try to do whatever test on your data set until you find something positive, and then you say that this is the only thing that I've done. Then in fact, it seems likely that the one positive result that you did get after trying to do whatever with your data is more like, um, like a statistical fluke than an actual true result. Yeah. It would be more likely to be a coincidence than your, but then the way you're reporting, it seems to suggest. Right. And so that ties in, of course, quite nicely with the point about the replication crisis, right? Because then subsequent studies trying to replicate things would find that things would in fact reproduce at a lower rate than you would have otherwise expected given what people have reported as a result. Right. Um, and do we have an indication of like how often something like this happens? Not in any precise sense that I'm aware of. It's really hard because as we've just said, people have an incentive to hide this when they're doing it. But I, I think we have good reason to think that at least until this became a whole big deal, that people were doing this a lot. Um, that it was in, in, at least in certain fields was just standard practice. Just how you go about your research is, mm. well, you're looking for statistically significant results. Here are some neat tricks to find them, you know, make sure you've measured some demographic variables about your subject so that you can do analyses on subpopulations. That's just common wisdom in our field for how we make sure we get the sorts of results we're looking for. Uh, and now we're looking at them and we're like, hmm, are we sure that's what we should be doing? What would be some other statistical issues that uh, contribute to this low reproducibility of scientific results? So I don't know if this would be strictly speaking statistical issues, but um, there, are, there are other things that people have suggested to reproducibility issues. Some people say that um, there's a lot more fraud or data fabrication happening than, uh, than we're currently aware of. Mm. Um, yeah, more on the direction of how we go about publishing things, right? We already talked about the preference for publishing statistically significant results. There's also a um, reason for people who want to publish a lot of paper to slice their papers up into sort of small pieces. You know, one, right. if you need a statistically significant results to publish, right? And statistically significant results are precious. So if you find three, you better spread them out over three papers rather than just one, right? Right. And so you're... You're, you're collecting one data set and then trying to get as many publications as you can out of it, rather than presenting like a coherent, thorough, big analysis of your data set as like one unit. It might also be easier to understand, easier to criticize, easier for others to work with and replicate so on. Don't want to get too far afield from, from our line of conversation here, but so it just seems to me that a common thread underlying all these things and and I think I know you have thoughts on this, is that there seems to be a, a mismatch between the incentives of individual scientists, because they have the incentive of finding significant results and, and so on, and that leads to all the things that, that you just said, and kind of the, not necessarily the incentives, but, you know, what would be good, you know, for, for science or for society as a whole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of my hobby horses. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the way we've organized um, academia, academic science, is that you get rewarded for originality by 
the recognition from your peers. And that's how you build a scientific career. And, um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of research on this and we can, we can, we can find some pretty clear cut arguments for, for aspects of scientific decision-making that this has positive effects on, but there's also negative effects. Um, and I think we're, we're running up against some of those here where, um, especially when you combine the individual incentives with the way that journals are run, you see that, um, they create a, a bad incentive structure where, because the journals want statistically significant results, the scientists are going to make sure to produce them, um, right. almost at whatever cost. you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. And that's, that's potentially part of the problem here. What would be some of the things that we should be doing, or we are already doing to improve this whole situation? Cause I mentioned a couple of times that this, so it's becoming, um, more and more of a thing. Like people are getting more and more aware of it and so on. So what are some of the developments here? Yeah, no, this is, uh, this is a hot topic. Um, especially in, in those fields that have, um, that where these problems were first sort of, um, raised, people have been spending quite a bit of time thinking about them and, and thinking about potential solutions. Um, and again, because people disagree about the causes, you know, they also disagree about the solutions and how effective they're going to be. Right. Probably the most well-known one is this phenomenon of pre-registration. So pre-registration is when you announce in advance in a public way, what kind of data you're going to collect, um, or what kind of study you're going to run. And sometimes right. this is, this, this might be combined with, or the terms might be used interchangeably with the pre-analysis plan, where you say in advance, what kind of statistical analysis of your data you're going to do, what kind of right. statistical tests you're going to use. And so the idea here is to sort of tie your own hands, um, so that you cannot later engage in P-hacking effectively. Okay. If you right. already said, I'm going to collect these variables and I'm going to look for this correlation and here's how I'm going to test for it. Then if you laser publish a paper trying to argue for the same effects, but using different measures or different tests, then it would, it's going to look pretty suspicious that you may have engaged in p-hacking. Um, because then it's going to right. look like for the rest of the world, like, oh, you tried the thing and then you did find a non-significant result. So then you changed it. So wow, that's p-hacking, right? And so then we should adjust how much we believe your results on that basis. Right. So if you commit in advance to only doing certain analyses or, um, yeah, only testing certain hypotheses, then it's no longer possible to just do whatever test, uh, until you find some kind of significant result. Well, at least you're going to have some explaining to do if you end up doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in practice it's complicated, right? So one of the, one of the common counter one of the common criticisms of pre-registration and pre-analysis plans is, well, you can't always, it's not always reasonable to try to say in advance what you're going to do, because that's just not how research works, right? You, you want to be, you, you don't want to tie your hands because the whole point of research is to see where the data takes you, uh, or, you know, some would argue. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. But on the other hand, you could also think that, well, hopefully you're testing a theory and a theory will, will make a specific prediction about you know, what this data will look like if the theory is true. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so the one counter to the criticism would be to say, well, we might want to distinguish between exploratory and confirmatory confirmatory research. With confirmatory research, you really need that pre-registration, right? You want to make sure you're actually confirming the hypothesis that you said in advance you wanted to confirm. Whereas with exploratory, maybe it's a bit more open-ended and we're okay. Okay, you go ahead and you p-hack to your heart's content, see what you find, and then mm -hmm. someone else is going to do a confirmatory study to see if it's a real thing that you found. Do you think that that's something that we should incorporate, that distinction? Well, I don't know. It's, it's always tricky with these kinds of distinctions. Philosoph the philosopher of science in me immediately wants to say like, wow, but this is not like a black and white sort of binary distinction. Um, so that might complicate things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, of course, is that it's going to be difficult to, you know, taking it back all the way to the beginning, if we're talking about newspaper articles, right? What's to stop the exploratory researcher from giving us results to the newspaper and presenting them as if they've made this kind of finding without going to the confirmation? Right. So there's that danger. Gets to incentives, right? Yeah. Um, right. So you, you'd have to set this up carefully to make sure that it's actually in everyone's interest to play the game in that way, if that's what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. So otherwise, there will be danger that the distinction gets lost, you know, or maybe forgotten <laughs> further down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, if I'm the exploratory researcher, why is it in my interest to be really upfront about the fact that this is an exploratory study? How are you going to make sure that I'm going to be clear about that instead of just being a bit vague or wishy-washy or just trying to hide that fact? So it's not clear whether this can do the work that we, that we'd like it to do. Well, this would be my view anyway, that like these sorts of, um, approaches, I think are in general, a good idea. Um, pre-registration and so on. But if you don't also think about the incentives, then, um, you're probably going to run into di different problems pretty quickly. Are there any other things besides pre-registration that you think are worth mentioning here? Yeah. I mean, the other thing, and it's somewhat related perhaps, you know, the, the, uh, publishing null results, right? So this right. idea that only statistically significant results are publishable is is I think quite clearly part of the problem for, for many different reasons. I think we would all be better off if a more complete picture of what evidence people actually gathered, what data people actually gathered would be public, would be made public. Right. So pre-registration is sometimes a way to do this because you sometimes have a version of pre-registration where the journal also commits in advance to publishing the results of the analysis. So even if it's a null result, you get a publication. So that takes care of the incentive side to a certain degree. And then you get more null results into the literature. Or you can divorce these two aspects and just say, well, we're just going to have more attention in our journals to null results, regardless of whether they come from a pre-registered or not pre-registered study. Right. So maybe just to be very clear on, so why is it a bad thing if there are no null results uh, published? Well, so this is think about, so if we think slightly differently about this example, about the peanut butter, right? Instead of imagining that one researcher is measuring all these variables and looking for the statistically significant results, mm -hmm. imagine that we have 20 different researchers, all interested in the same mm -hmm. question, but they use slightly different measures. And one of them finds a statistically significant association between green lidded uh, peanut butter and uh, chance of cancer, and the other 19 don'ts. Right. If you only publish the statistically significant results, then you have at least prima facie some reason to think that there is some relation between peanut butter and cancer. 
But if you right. can see that there were 19 other studies that never got published that found no association, um, you might want to draw a different conclusion or yeah. just a much more nuanced one. Yeah. Right. So just having, you know, this is the principle of total evidence, right? You'd like yeah. to see all the evidence that bears on the, on the hypothesis at hand. And yeah. there's not much of a reason to hide all that stuff in the file drawer. Yeah, right. Exactly. So one of the, the rationales for not publishing negative results that you often hear is that, you know, we'd like to have surprising, interesting results. But that more or less assumes that negative results, the no results cannot be interesting. But I don't, I think that's a weird assumption because often when you do a study, you expect to find a certain result. So not finding a result is also a surprising and interesting result, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so publishing null results, I think is also, and also pre-registration, they're sort of loose, at least loosely associated with the open science movements. Uh, which I think more generally just has, has this idea of like, we're just trying to open up to scrutiny and to transparency as much as possible of the research pipeline. So right. under, so, you know, people talking about, um, opening data, opening up data, um, making data sets publicly available, open code, right. Sharing the exact code that you use to do your statistical analysis, for example. Um, opening up peer review, all of these things are ways to, um, give people that are interested more insight into what actually happened in a particular study, which again, might put us in a better position to pinpoint whether there's going to be problems with a particular study. And if it turns out that there are problems with a particular study to, to pinpoint where they happened. Yeah. And you would think it, it contributes to the accountability. Uh, well, in that sense, it would encourage honesty if it's all publicly trackable. Yeah. So, you know, like, I think that if you encourage more openness, if that became an established norm, it also helps a little bit on the incentive side, I think, because the more people are going to be able to see what you do, the more you would like to show that you've done something good. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if we take these two things, so pre-registration and publishing publishing new results. So you can see how these solutions flow pretty naturally, at least from how we've discussed the causes and mm -hmm. this conversation. But so is this something that that's really already happening or is it just like philosophers of science saying that we should do this and, and in actual real life, it's just like a marginal thing. I mean, this is definitely growing hard for me to say like in percentages, what we're talking about, but certainly these are initiatives that have been going for trying to push for these things, you know, setting up journals for null results and setting up pre-registration servers and various kinds of, you know, the, the open science framework, OSF, where people put up entire plans in advance of doing their studies and trying to share as much as possible with their research process. These things exist. Um, right. people have built platforms for these various, for these various things and they're growing. Like, I don't know how big they are now relative to all the research that's being done, but this is certainly, uh, a movement that has some momentum behind it. Does that mean in your view that we're heading in the right direction and maybe in five years or 10 years, when I see the newspaper article with peanut butter and cancer, uh, I'm, I'm more entitled to conclude that it's true. Oh, 
maybe slightly. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's that seems optimistic to me. Um, we haven't even gotten into the relationship between how results actually appear in studies from how they end up getting reported in newspaper articles. That's we haven't touched on that aspect at all yet. How much will be achieved in five years? It's hard to say. I think my sense is that, I guess, expanding slightly on what I said earlier, my sense is that is a quickly growing movement for these various pre-registration plans and null results and so on. But I don't think it's the dominant approach yet. So there's, mm -hmm. I think, still quite a way to go as well. So there's still a large way to go before the results get more robust in a sense. Yeah. And like, in a way, the other aspect, I guess, is that would you really ever expect a single study to be particularly robust, right? Like. This is kind of what I said, I think, in response to your very first question. As philosophers of science, we've known for a long time that, like, no single study is going to be decisive or immune to being overturned. Um, right. So maybe having it be the case that a single study reported in Nature or Science or whatever, and then reporting on that in the newspaper, for that to be a reliable way to learn about the world, maybe that's never really going to be a thing. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that is a bit counterintuitive to most people, I I think, because it's a, it's a very common way to think that, okay, so there has been a scientific study, therefore this is true. Yeah, no, I mean, in the, in the, I think probably in the best possible cases, it's like, this is the best we can say with the data we have so far, right? Yeah. And that's like depending on your level of interest in the topic and the purpose that you're going to use it for, that might be pretty close to just taking it as true. And, um, it depends what kind what you're planning to use it for as well. But, um, yeah, but then also, yeah, the other thing that I'm, I'm sort of hinting at is that like, it'd be nice if these sorts of articles reported more on things like meta-analyses instead of single studies. Mm -hmm. So if like, when they're reporting a result in the newspaper, they're mainly saying like, oh, there's a paper out on this, but also we've looked at previous papers that have been published on this topic, or someone else has done this and done a meta-analysis and we're reporting on that, like to get you actually the best of the evidence that's currently available rather than just what is happens to be in that single paper or study. Right. And I don't, know, I don't know if it's journalists or scientists that need to change their practices to make that happen or both, but, um, I think there's still rover improvement there as well. Right. Maybe we can continue to talk about that in, uh, in another episode. Yeah, yeah sounds so, good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks for this uh, conversation and, yeah. uh, yeah, let's talk in, uh, like a month or two. Sounds good. So what should be the takeaway of this conversation? Well, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with the scientific method. I mean, I'm a big fan of science myself, but there is something wrong with assuming that all science is done to the highest standards and with assuming that everyone reporting on science knows what they're talking about and is free of their own biases. So come the rise in people doing their own research. They're obviously not conducting their own experiments but they are trying to find the scientific literature themselves to interpret it instead of trusting the sources we now know to be fallible to do the reporting for them. 
But reading the literature ourselves is a very new thing. 25 years ago, it would have been exceptionally hard to find research studies backing up a claim. Today, you can do it in a few minutes on Google Scholar. And we're only now starting to see the fallout from this dramatic change in access to information. But how do you even do your own digging to see how the science was conducted? And are there other proxies you can use to evaluate their trustworthiness? What are books that can help, such as How to Lie with Statistics or Calling Bullshit? And everyone could probably benefit from a research methods course. But we also need some sort of a social infrastructure to support scientific discourse. The biggest red flags to me in representing information is when an authority says they are the only ones able to interpret the data, that it would somehow be dangerous to give the masses the unfiltered information because they're irrational or gullible or whatever. Read my forthcoming book on why people are rational to get that argument just as an example. So I think one of the most entertaining examples of this dynamic from last year was the dialogue about this COVID drug, this supposed COVID drug that was also a horse medicine and that was popular in some circles around COVID. There was apparently research coming out suggesting that it helped with treating or preventing COVID. But the establishment were turned out to be right. But nonetheless, they didn't critique their research. They didn't go into like the actual arguments. They instead pretended that everyone who thought their horse medicine would work were idiots. Now, the best critique I was able to find against this medicine being effective for COVID was the one written by my favorite blog, Slate Star Codex. It was incredibly scientific and gives a very compelling, well-researched explanation for why this medicine doesn't work for COVID. Now, that is scientific leadership, going into the arguments, going into the data. One reason we are afraid to do that is because we have this wrong image of people only wanting to hear gossip news and being irrational and so on. So that's all wrong and we should have more of this. And that is scientific leadership and it's something we're solely lacking in our political and media authorities today.